It is Tuesday, January 10th, 2023, and this is Ozarks at Large. I'm Kyle Kellams. This is 91.3 KUAF, a listener-supported service of the School of Journalism and Strategic Media at the University of Arkansas. Today on our show, the first woman to be the governor of Arkansas was sworn in today. Just a few days ago, Governor Sarah Huckabee Sanders sat down with Roby Brock. He's with our partner, Talk Business and Politics. They discussed education. We'll hear that conversation in about 25 minutes. Not that long ago, Andrew Kilgore came to the Carver Center for Public Radio to talk to us about his life in photography and the 100 photographs contained in a new exhibition of his work at the Walton Art Center. Those 100 photographs were taken from the tens of thousands he's taken in Fayetteville, across Arkansas, and beyond during his 82 years. When he came to our studio, along with the exhibit's curator, Kathy Thompson, I asked about the process of choosing just 100 images. Oh, I think that there are a lot of really great photographs in there that I really love a lot, and there are some favorites that aren't there, but Kathy and I agreed when we started out that it wasn't about the ones that are not in it, it's about the ones that are in it, because there are so many of both of our favorites that yeah. they're just, you know, you just... We, we st- I started out with about 2,000, two or 3,000 photographs, and I winnowed that down to about 250, and then Kathy uh, basically winnowed it down to the 100, but with us working together on it. So How, how did that winnowing work? Mm. How do you go from 2,000 or 3,000 to 100? A lot of arguing. <laughs> I wasn't going to say that, but no, Andrew and I are, you know, we've known each other a long time. Andrew Kilgore says his decades of work include client work that's paid the bills and advocacy work that's kept his mind and heart healthy. He says it was Jason Smith at the Walton Art Center who suggested that the exhibit focus on Andrew's passion of working with people who might otherwise not be seen by the rest of us. One of the words that's been used to describe my work is to be a stigma buster. So, you know, I've, I, I remember the first m- major advocacy piece that I did was the, we drew a circle about people with developmental disabilities. We debuted it in a, in a huge bank lobby in downtown Little Rock. And I, I had people say, they, people used to take a shortcut through that lobby. And I, I had people say, you know, I, I, I walked in there on my way to someplace else and I saw your pictures and I, and I was, and a half an hour later, I walked out of there with a completely different idea about what it means to have mental retardation is what we called it then. So the ability to, to, to affect how people saw people that they had had negative attitudes towards. I was just going to say, just people that they'd never paid any attention to. Yeah, yes. invisible people. Yes. Well, let me ask you an impossible question to answer. Okay, I like those. Okay. Because there are, every photograph I've ever seen that you've taken, including the one that's on my office wall of Donald Harrington, the one of my niece that you took, every single one has a story behind it. Maybe it's in the story is in the eye of the viewer, but if you give me a camera and I take pictures of these folks, I don't get the same result. There isn't that three-dimensional story that you, Andrew Kilgore, get. Well put. How do you do that? <laughs> yeah, really. Uh, you know, I had someone one time, uh, they had come over for a sitting and, and I invited them to sit and we chatted for about a half an hour and they said, oh, you know, I, I bet you have these conversations with people so that uh, so that you can make that story, you know. And I said, actually, you have it exactly backwards. I I photograph people so that I get to talk to them. I don't talk to them to make a better photograph. So I think somewhere along the line, maybe born with it, I just have been fascinated by other people, and. And I and I'm, you know, part partly my my experience in the Peace Corps, partly my experience moving to El Paso, Texas, when I was 16. I discovered that that people who are vulnerable and and who are most desperately vulnerable uh, are just 
I just fall in love with them. A kind of a, I don't know, maybe an ability to see people more deeply and clearly than well, maybe sometimes. that they just open up to you, Andrew. Yeah, that's And good that thing. is what you're seeing when you're looking at the photograph that's different from others, is that they have, because you've spent time with them and getting to know them, they are more open to you, which means that they're, they're more open when you photograph them. I think sometimes people, uh, they, they show up for a sitting or, they, or, or they're part of a project and they expect me to have a certain kind of uh, power aura, you know, and I don't. I'm just a really goofy old person. And I've, even when I was young, I was kind of a goofy old person. So that, <laughs> that uh, yeah, I, I used to put on clown shows for the, fellow, for the other kids in my neighborhood when I was six and seven years old. You know, I've always, I was the, I was the, the soft, pudgy, non-athletic kid who, who, who survived by being able to entertain people by just being kind of, well, goofy. What's the sensation? And I don't know if, if, if you ever use film anymore. But what is or was the sensation of seeing that image come up through the solution? Oh, the that's when room? I became a photographer. Yeah, that's the magic. Uh, <clears throat> you know, I bought my first camera on the way home from the Peace Corps in Hong Kong. And for a, a year or two, it was just kind of in the closet. And I'd get it out every now and then and goof around with it. And then I, I, I was living in Austin and I had this job. Uh, working with totally blind, what we then called severely retarded, institutionalized children at the state school. And uh, my next-door neighbor built a darkroom and, and invited me to use it. And I thought, oh, well, why not? So I, I took my camera out to, the, to where I worked, and I shot a couple rolls of film of those kids. Two of them are in this mm -hmm. show. And uh, developed the film, and then put a negative in the enlarger and, you know, having read the instructions, kind of slid the photographic paper into the developer tray and watched that image materialize. And in that instant, you know, <clears throat> knew that I had found my home, you know, found my my way through the world. Yeah. And I don't even, I haven't been in a darkroom now in God, 10 years probably, uh, and I find the the digital process of photographing as magical, really. Uh, but yeah, it's a, the 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 darkroom and the and all that chemistry and that way of making images was uh, was really wonderful. I've selected five photographs from the collection that I want to ask you about specifically. Sure. That's all right. I've got them marked here. This first one is a young black child who, who looked to me forlorn. He had, there are a couple of maybe volleyballs or, or some sort of athletic ball behind him. It's from the Sunrise 1970 collection is how is it labeled. Yeah, you, I know that. Picture. Okay. What, do you, uh, what can you tell me about that? Uh, that was one of the first pictures that I took in Austin. Uh, that child was totally blind. He... He was he was uh, developmentally disabled to the point where he didn't he didn't know that language was happening. He didn't hear words. Uh, he uh, he was one of the kids that I worked with the most, uh, mainly just helping him to find his way around the 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 place where he lived. Uh, there were 22 kids on this little ward and. And our what we were supposedly doing was developing a curriculum, a way of working with kids with that multiply multiply handicapped thing. And and he was just this incredibly beautiful child. He was 12 years old when I took that picture, and 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 just a beautiful kid. And and I, you know, I I loved him. And and I've I've always liked that photograph a lot because it. It really expresses what his life was like. You know, he would find a place in that. It was a big old room, and it had a bunch of stuff in it. And all 22 of the kids and the different people that worked with him would be in there and doing stuff. And 
he'd find a place where he could just sit down and listen to what was going on. And I, I have no idea what the world was like for him, but, uh, but whatever it was, we shared it. I want to ask you about this photo, and this is from 1981. Drew a Circle is the name of this. We Drew a Circle. We Drew a Circle. It's from a poem. We wanted to draw a circle that would, a, a large enough circle that people with those disabilities, that's a Down syndrome man who was about 40, 45. He's holding uh, his arms out. He just did that. I have no idea why he did that. Uh, but uh, he... Uh, he he was a wonderful subject. I, a lot of the these special projects that I did, uh, I only had a, a few moments with each person. So I, I would go to a to an institution, or people would bring a bunch of people over to my studio from a from an from some place where they were being served, a group home or an institution, and I would just have a few minutes with each one of them. So whatever they offered, you know, was. Uh, but the 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 part of the part of the uh, of the of that process was to, to 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 photograph them with as much respect as 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 possible, so that they felt, for once, like they were the important person in the room. So, and I think he felt that. I think he felt like. Our conversation with Andrew Kilgore continues just ahead on today's show. I'll ask him about more of the arresting images that are on exhibit at the Joy Pratt Markham Gallery in the Walton Arts Center. And I'll ask him what part of his work stays with him. The discussion continues in just a moment on Ozarks at Large. I'm Steve Inskeep. Around the world, our co-host Leila Fadel has been reporting from Ukraine. In your community, workers are unionizing in fields where they haven't always had a big presence. And farther afield, think really far, like Six, out of this world. Five. And liftoff of Artemis One. Morning Edition from NPR News takes you wherever the story is. Listen every weekday. Morning Edition, every morning from 5 to 9 on KUAF. And you can hear Pete Hartman with the Community Spotlight, detailing work of nonprofits in our area each weekday morning at 6.30 and 8.30. And we'll continue our visit with Andrew Kilgore, talking about his work next. This is a Tuesday edition of Ozarks at Large. A new retrospective of Andrew Kilgore's photography can be seen at Walton Art Center. The exhibition opened Friday, and it includes 100 photographs pulled from the thousands he's taken during his lifetime. When Andrew came to the Anthony and Susan Hoy News Studio recently, along with exhibition curator Kathy Thompson, I asked him about a few specific images now on view in the gallery. All right, so this is from 1993. It's a woman who has her. Oh, she was great. She was. She was. She. Uh, she was. Uh, she had schizophrenia, and I, I love talking to people with schizophrenia. Really, uh, uh, extreme cases of it because they talk in metaphors, and and some people, even psychiatrists, will say, "Oh, you know, that what they say doesn't have any meaning. It's just garbled, you know, stuff from their whatever," and. And but I find that they that often it has a lot of meaning. And what that what this little she was a little tiny woman. She I would be surprised if she weighed ninety pounds. And she sat there and she explained to us that she was Mother Teresa, and that the woman who was known as Mother Teresa was actually uh, Joan of Arc. And and she went into some detail and explained to us that she was Mother Teresa. And. And I think a lot of people would have heard that and would have thought, eh, she's a crazy old lady. What I heard was, you don't have to be afraid of me. I'm really a nice person. I'm a good person like Mother Teresa. In this photo, she has her hands right up by her face. She's got a smile on and brightly colored yeah. clothes. It looks... I'm Mother Teresa. She's just, uh, what's the word? She's just um, beaming, Ra radiant. Yeah, radiant. Yeah, she was. She was great. I loved her. Was this another instance where you just had a few minutes with someone? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Maybe 10 minutes, maybe. There's a connection. Yeah. Yeah. 
this is one of the one time we were I was photographing a, uh, for this organization in Little Rock uh, called Youth at Risk, and and I I had to photograph uh, several hundred of these uh, uh, teenagers in the Little Rock school system that had been identified as being potentially uh, in trouble or or victims of tr trouble, and they were trying to find a way. So I, I went to this one high school, and the principal there who, well, I, I can't use polite language to describe this man. I thought I was going to have all day to work with about 50 kids. He said I could do it in one uh, one set. Uh, one class period. Class period, which was like 52 minutes or something. So I photographed all 50 kids in 52 minutes. And, and uh, I, had, I had a couple of teachers helping and my, my assistant, and we just organized it. And so each, each student would come in, they'd be seated, I'd introduce myself, and I had like literally 30 seconds to establish that f feeling of rapport. Uh, and I think Kathy would agree, those photographs from that project are just amazing. So, so uh, the point being that sometimes we can find that connection almost instantaneously. It's nice if you have an hour to do it, but uh, but if but if you have to do it instantaneously, then then that's definitely possible. Let me ask you about one that I find just so fun. And it's, I believe that's Pierre Walker and Ellen Gilchrist. It is. That's Pierre. Yeah. Okay. Uh, Pierre, Ellen's son, is standing. He's, he's a young man. No, he's sitting. Is he yeah, sitting? Okay, he's sitting. And, and Ellen is sort of, I don't know, curled up. She sat on his lap. Sitting on his lap. And it's just this marvelous image. And I want to know, because Ellen is a wonderful, bigger-than-life personality, Pierre is a wonderful, bigger life than personality. I think of you as a wonderful, bigger than life personality. What was the room like when Andrew Kilgore, Pierre Walker, and Ellen Gilchrist were all there together? We were just playing. It was just fun. We were just having a good time. I, you know, I, I knew Ellen really well. We were good, good friends. And I knew Pierre, you know, fairly well, not real well, but well enough. And we were just all having a good time. When you're having a good time, are you giving direction? Did you say, oh, try sitting on his lap? or did No, that... no. That was Alan's idea completely. Was there laughter during that session? Oh, God, yeah. Uh, let's see. This. So this one. Oh, that's an interesting one. It's four. Okay. Let me set the, uh, yeah. the context here. It's a, it, it, And I don't know the backstory at all, so I'm going to tell you what I bring as, a, as an observer. It's a young man who has three children. I don't know if they're related to him or not. It's from 2013. But my goodness, it, it looks like it could be from 2013 or 1933. Mm -hmm. And the range of emotions on the faces is all over the place. What can you tell me about this? Okay. So uh, I, I think that I, from my point of view, uh, and I'm not a psychiatrist or, or, or a psychologist, but from my point of view, I've done two major exhibits about people who, sorry, young people, have uh, suffer from some form of mental illness. What, what do you guys like to call that anymore? I don't know. Anyway, uh, the, uh, in the first one, they had been diagnosed and were being treated. In the second one, it was about people who lived on the street, uh, often homeless, uh, often tra traveling, uh, who lived in extreme poverty, and who were not I, I call that exhibit a, a reluctance to engage. People who just had a hard time making those connections that most of us in this room make on a daily basis to work our way through life, all of us in this room. I don't know I meant most of us. But anyway, um, so this was the second of those. I photographed these people at St. Paul's Church at the free lunches. Uh, people came there because that was the only way they were going to get fed that day. Uh, and and uh, while I was, I would go in and photograph about 10 people uh, at the lunch. I'd go in uh, and pick out the people that I saw that I thought 
I'd like to photograph, and I would offer them a $20 bill to participate in the, in the project. And as I was going through that, uh, this fellow that was working with me came up and he said, uh, the, there was always a police officer on hand there. And the, the police officer had come up to him and said, there's this young family here that uh, they really, really uh, need the $20. And if there's any way you could fit them in, that'd be great. Well, the story was that they had a newborn baby. He was just a week or so old. The, the mom had had... Uh, what do you call it, uh, after, after the birth, she had complications and had to go back in the hospital. So this guy who, I don't know, he looked like he was in his mid-20s with a baby that was like a week old and, and another uh, baby that was obviously still in diapers and another child that was less than five years old. And this young guy, a tiny little guy, maybe weighed 120 pounds, and he, he was just dealing with it you know, with these three little kids. And I took that picture, and at the time I thought, well, it's such a chaotic image, I didn't think it, that it was a very good photograph. But the more familiar I became with it, and then showing it to other people, it's like it's one you picked out. Uh, people are moved by that photograph, and they, I think they get the, the plight that this that this young guy with these three little kids was in. Andrew, I'm wondering, because you, you don't just have your heart on your sleeve. You have your heart on your lens. And you are so emotionally connected to what you do in these people. Does it ever affect you? Does it, does it make you sad? Does, does it go with you? Well, that's a really good question. I think it's just part of who I am all the time. Uh, you know, the, there was a great cartoonist, the guy who did the Peanuts, Charles Schultz. Mm -hmm. uh, somebody asked him one time if he thought about his cartooning when he wasn't at his drawing board. And what he said was, oh, there's a part of my brain that is always cartooning. And, and I immediately knew exactly what he meant. There's a part of me that's always doing that. You know, whether I've got a camera in my hand or not, you know, uh, I look around and I look at people and I... And I'm moved by them, you know. Uh, and I always I want to photograph everybody just because it gives me permission to stare at people, to look deeply at people. Andrew Kilgore visited KUAF in late December. We also heard from Kathy Thompson, a longtime friend of Andrew's who helped select the 100 photos for the exhibit. The images can be seen in the Joy Pratt-Markham Gallery at the Walton Art Center through March 19th. This is Ozarks at Large. And up next, Arkansas's new governor, Sarah Huckabee Sanders, with Roby Brock from our partner, Talk Business and Politics. Sarah Huckabee Sanders is now governor of Arkansas, succeeding term-limited Asa Hutchinson. Late last week, she sat down with Roby Brock. This is when she was still governor-elect. Roby is with our partner, Talk Business and Politics. He mentioned to the new governor that she was the first woman and first mom to hold the office, the first daughter of a former governor to have the job, and she becomes the first Republican governor to follow a Republican predecessor in her job since Reconstruction. Roby asked Governor Sanders which of those first means the most to her. One more I'm going to add to the yeah, list only because I'm trying to claim my youthfulness as long as possible. <laughs> but I will also be the youngest governor in the country uh, when sworn in. But, Does that one mean more to you than the other ones? <laughs> no, but uh, I, I'm, I'm happy with less gray hair. But I'm pretty sure after the first session that will change pretty drastically. But uh, look, I think all of the first are, you know, historic and amazing and humbling and exciting. And 
you know, it's an amazing time in a way to be in Arkansas and, and get to be part of that. But the history I'm hoping to make isn't for anything uh, on that list, but the things that I think we're going to achieve for the state of Arkansas. I am very hopeful that we can do transformational things over the course of my time as governor. And that's why I ran, not to check boxes or make history with being a, the first woman or youngest, but over what I think that we can accomplish here for the state. I'll just put you down as that all of them are important to you. How about that? <laughs> That's so, well, let's dive straight into some policy education, your number one issue. Um, that means school choice, parental rights. There's lots of different ways you can define that. I want you to tell me what the, that framework looks like yeah. from a policy perspective for you. Yeah, so I spent a lot of time over the two years on the campaign talking about education. I've made no secret that it's my number one priority in this first legislative session. Release what we call the Arkansas Learns Initiative that focuses on some big priorities priority areas and now working with our partners in the legislature to build those out and execute. Uh, the first thing in LEARNS, it stand, it's not just a fun uh, catchphrase, but it actually stands for something. Literacy being the very first and I think one of the most pivotal parts of education and something frankly our state is not delivering on. Right now only about 35% of Arkansas third graders are reading at or above a third grade reading level. And we know that if a kid is not hitting that critical benchmark by that point that we're setting them up for failure. And to me, that's unacceptable. So what are you going to do differently on that front? Are you going to invest more money in uh, after school and summer programs? Are you going to put more money into tutors and uh, teachers that can help accelerate that? Because you say that 35% level, really like the best in the country is only around 40%. Yeah. So everybody is suffering in terms of every state. Uh, and, and that's true. And I want Arkansas to be the example of how we do it right. Uh, I want other states to look at us and be envious of the way that we have course corrected and improved those numbers. There are several things that I think we can do in this space. One is expanding access to pre-K across the state, making sure that more kids have a foundation at an earlier age helps put them on a better pathway long term. I also think providing things and working with uh, hard hit schools uh, in some of the more low income areas providing reading coaches and things like that. I saw firsthand the difference that it makes to have somebody who's trained in the science of reading and understands what to look for, how to correct it, and putting that kid on a pathway long-term. So there are some things that are big and are gonna take a bit more of a lift. And then there are some things that are smaller, making sure our teachers, teachers have the resources and training they need to be successful is a big part of that puzzle. Uh, that's gonna have a price tag. Do you have any early indication of how much you're willing to spend we're area. already spending 54% of our state budget goes to education. We should demand better results with the money that we're spending. We cannot continue to pour money into programs that aren't delivering. We have to take an assessment of everything we're doing, determine what's not working, and reallocate that money to things that we know and are proven to work and deliver the results, frankly, that our students and our families so deserve. So will the first year be more assessing what's going on? Because this is the legislative session to put some things in motion. So how do you assess but also legislate at the same time if you don't know what you're assessing. So. Well, there are some things we already know and that we can look at and there are already uh, funding programs that exist that will allow us to do some of these things. Um, and so I feel pretty confident that we can make some of the changes in this first session okay. to improve numbers moving forward. All right, let's talk about um, education savings accounts, voucher, pro whatever you want to call it there. There's a lot of different names for it, but you want parents to have more choices for their kids going to school public school, charter school, private school, homeschool, virtual school, learning pods. I mean, I, there's a million of them. I've been learning through all the research there. One of the things that's being discussed is allowing that money that we spend at the public school level per student to move with the students anywhere. Do you support that? You know, one of the, and I only got to the first letter in LEARNS, but the, the second part is empowerment. And that is putting the decision-making power in the hands of the parents instead of in the hands of bureaucrats. I think that's really important. We have to make sure that parents have a lot more power about deciding how and where their child is best educated. You have more than one kid. I have three kids myself. 
all three, three I know, <laughs> that's what I said, <laughs> we have three kids. I know that each one of my kids learns very differently. I know that they each need different things, they have different personalities, and so what works for one may not work for another. And so knowing that I have the ability to make decisions about what is best for each of my kids is really important, and frankly, it's my responsibility. And so making sure that we are empowering parents to make those decisions is gonna be a priority for my administration. But so to the money question, though, yeah. does the money follow the student? Is that gonna be something you advocate? Is I that think there are different ways that we can break it down. I certainly think um, having education accounts that give some flexibility to parents, but we've got to work with our partners in the legislature. Um, as much as I would love to make all the decisions all by myself, that's unfortunately not how it works. Uh, but I do think that we have a great start and great people and coalitions that we're going to be able to work with to deliver. But your preference is going to be important to those legislators. I think Senator uh, Hester's so. already told, told everybody <laughs> we're going to do whatever Sarah tells us to do. Let's see, I don't, let's I don't see, think it'll be that let's easy. See if so. they, they, I, I hope that uh, it stays true that we get to do that all the way through the entire session. In fact, if I can get a copy of uh, that recorded, I'll be happy to play it for all the members regularly and let them know that you sent it, sent it I over. I bet we could probably find that. So, <laughs> so, um, so again, I mean, I just want to make sure I'm clear. You, you, you're not opposed to the money following the students. Too. I'm not. I'm not opposed to uh, parents having the ability to spend their taxpayer dollars on the best education possible for their kids. All right, teacher pay be another big education issue. It's probably one of your acronym words there. So uh, S for salaries, maybe. Um, A for accountability. Okay. I think empowering our teachers, making sure we're rewarding the hardworking teachers of Arkansas is important. Uh, I've been pretty public that I support the teacher pay increases. Um, and I think you have that's a dollar amount in mind. Uh, again, I, I think that's else. that's something that we have to work through with the legislature, but um, absolutely has to be on the table and will be part of any education package I put forward. Are there any states that you're looking at specifically that you see have some model programs that you want to borrow from? Yeah. Arizona and Florida would be two that might come to mind based on the appointments you've made to yeah. your chief of staff and your uh, education secretary. You know, one of the great things about uh, being a governor versus being in Congress or in the Senate is that there is a much greater sense of collaboration between governors. There's a much better sense of sharing best practices. So I look forward to stealing things that are working from all 49 other states. There's no reason that if we see that something is working somewhere else and it's applicable to Arkansas that we shouldn't try to look at those programs and implement them here. We've seen this in the legislature the last couple of times around. I think we will see more of what I call the culture wars um, and I think education will be a big place where we may see some culture wars in Florida for instance you've seen the yeah. don't say gay legislation which is the I think the acronym of the or the moniker for the opponents of that. Are we going to have that type of uh, culture war in education here in Arkansas in this next session? Uh, I would be surprised if there weren't some pieces of that uh, during this session. Um, Will you and be opposing it? I, I have to know specifically, I'm sorry, what you're talking about. That piece of legislation, mm -hmm. I would sign that. I've already said publicly that I would. Um, I obviously disagree with the way that they've characterized it since it doesn't say that anywhere in the legislation. Right. But anytime I think we have an opportunity as a government to do our part in protecting kids, we need to take advantage of that and do what we can to make sure that we are uh, doing everything within our power to protect the young people in Arkansas. Governor Sarah Huckabee Sanders spoke with Roby Brock from our partner Talk Business and Politics late last week. Much more from the conversation at talkbusiness.net. The first KUAF Lunch Hour performance of 2023 will move across Mountain Street to the Fayetteville Public Library because we'll need a little more room for this one. It features Amos Cochran, an Emmy-nominated composer, musician, and sound artist, alongside the Fort Smith Symphony String Quartet performing live. Food will be provided by 641 Deli with sandwiches, salads, and of course beans and rice. This year, Cochran will be one of the Arkansas Arts Council Fellows for his multi-sensory work and will collaborate with the Fort Smith Symphony for their new chamber music services. Music from Amos Cochran and the Fort Smith Symphony and food from 641 Deli. It's the KUAF Lunch Hour, January 13th, beginning at noon. For tickets, eventbrite.com, then search Lunch Hour. This is Ozarks at Large, and with me for the first time, in 2023 is film reviewer Courtney Lanning. We're talking via Zoom. Happy New Year, Courtney. Happy New Year, Kyle. 
Uh, we're going to take an opportunity here to discuss your 10 favorite movies of 2022. I've looked at the list, and one thing I can say is that there's variety, and it was a pretty good year for film. You know, I have to admit, um, I, I watched a few stinkers in 2022, but I also watched a lot of good cinema, Kyle. So you're right. I think 2022 was an exceptional year for movies. And what I like about this, we've talked about some of these movies uh, over the course of the last 12 months, but what I like about this is there's some on here that I know surprised you with how good they were, how much you liked them. Absolutely. You know, when you, when you know you're going to write an article like this at the end of every year or at the start of every new year, which, whichever, um, it's, it's hard for, for at least my brain not to be thinking throughout the year, okay, well, is this going to make the list? And this might make the list. And then maybe in November it gets bumped for something else. And, you know, it's, it's an ever-evolving equation. But, you know, once the things are on the list, that's, that's that. Well, let's start. Your, your, let's start with your 10th favorite movie of 2022. Yes. Um, this is one that I remember seeing the trailer for and going, oh, yes, I, I definitely would love to go see that in theaters. Uh, and it's 3,000 Years of Longing, uh, which, of course, stars one of my favorite actors, two of my favorite actors, uh, Idris Elba and Tilda Swinton. Uh, Idris Elba, the, of course, is a genie or a djinn in this movie. Um, and Tilda Swinton is, of course, granted three wishes as per usual, but she's a rather intelligent woman, as it turns out. Um, she has studied a lot of literature in her life, as apparently British people in movies are wont to do. <laughs> and she knows that the three wishes will always turn out disastrous for their users. So uh, Tilda Swinton has to convince her, you've got to make these three wishes. Um, if you don't, I'm stuck here. And basically he regales her with tales from his 3,000 years of life, um, the dangers of making wishes and people who have loved him before and people who have hated him and people who use wishes for good things and bad things and, and all of their regrets. And it's just, it's a fascinating movie. I like you. Those are two of my favorite actors. And Tilda Swinton, I can't remember anything I've seen her in, even if I didn't like the movie as much. I can't think of anything I've seen her in where I just wasn't blown away by her performance. Yeah, I mean, she is definitely one of the most inquisitive actors out there. Um, I see her in a movie and I go, oh, that's Tilda Swinton. Let's sit down and watch it. And it's the same thing for Idris Elba, of course. Of course. All right, 3,000 Years of Longing. Number nine, one we did talk about this year, Cha-Cha Real Smooth. Yes, this is one that I think... Uh, might catch some people by surprise if they haven't heard of it. If people have seen the movie, they are probably already fans of it. Um, it's To me, it definitely came out of nowhere. Um, Apple TV Plus has a pretty good record in my book of putting movies on their service that I just absolutely fall head over heels for, um, whether it is Wolf Walkers, which ended up being one of my favorite animated movies. I think we might have talked about that once upon a time a couple years back. Um, last year they put out Ray and Raymond, which I know we talked about the two brothers who have to go to their father's funeral. And, you know, this is just another great example of, they just seem to know what they're, they seem to be know what they're doing when it comes to their film, their films. Uh, and it, like you said, it sort of came out of nowhere. This one, at least in my atmosphere and universe, didn't have a lot of pre-release hype. No. And, um, you know, if, if you're not a film critic who's looking at what's coming out every single week, um, it may be hard to keep up with what's coming out. Maybe people know, you know, two or three movies coming out in a year, and they're probably Marvel films. Let's just say that. Um, they probably know, oh, Ant-Man 3 is coming out in February. I want to, you know, and they keep up with it. But something like Cha-Cha Real Smooth, unless you just happen to catch the trailer before you're, you know, what you're watching on Hulu or something, I mean, it, it'd be difficult to find it. Um because it is a streaming movie that didn't have a huge budget. And it's a really simple story uh, of a young guy who is down on his luck between jobs, um, ends up finding out that he is good at warming up the dance floor at bar and bat mitzvahs. So basically he gets hired by Jewish mothers to put on these parties and make the dance floor less awkward for kids who are at that 
at awkward age. And he ends up falling head over heels for uh, a mother who has a daughter who has autism. And, you know, they just connect. Their chemistry is amazing. Um, it's Dakota Johnson and Cooper Rafe. Uh, and the movie is very respectful with how it deals with the heavy subject of living with autism, people who are on the spectrum and the challenges they face. I remember when we talked about this earlier or last year, you mentioned that it at its heart seemed like a very realistic love story. Yeah, because, you know, we've talked about a number of rom-coms and romantic movies and such. And, you know, they they give us the love stories that they think we want. But Cha-Cha Real Smooth gives us a realistic love story in that love so rarely is free of conflict and messiness. And this is a movie where, you know, spoiler alert, it's been out for a little bit. At the end, they don't get, they don't end up together. You know, they, they, they go their own ways and, and that's that. As is life sometimes. The eighth movie, so that's Cha-Cha Real Smooth, your ninth favorite of last year. The eighth is a movie that did have a big budget. I think some people didn't know it was coming out, but it came out around the same time as the Avatar sequel. And while it's done okay at the box office, some people might have missed it, but you really like this movie. I did. And consider this one another surprise. Uh, I'm going to age myself a little bit here. Uh, Shrek came out when I was... 11 years old. I'll, I'll give you a moment to yeah, thank you. put your thank oxygen you. yes. mask on. <laughs> Get off my lawn, Courtney. <laughs> <laughs> um, so this this film franchise has been around for a while. The first one was great. I think Shrek 2 is one of the best sequels ever made in terms of story and character growth. Um, but, you know, along the way, they came out with Shrek 3 and 4, and the, the franchise has since floundered into oblivion. But they've made these Puss in Boots sequels, or spinoffs, and they've both got great reviews. But The Last Wish has just been a stellar entry. You know, it brings so much to the table. DreamWorks really updated their animation style, so it's very fluid, and it's it's also jagged during the action scenes, and it's... Uh, you know, just really provides a lot visually. It's a very unique style that they've brought to this movie. Um, and Antonio Banderas and uh, Salma Hayek, you know, they bring their A-game in a surprisingly deep narrative that touches on everything from mental health to people's mortality. It just comes out of nowhere. One thing that you and other reviewers have said about this is that uh, Salma Hayek and Antonio Banderas, you can tell they're acting with their voices. It's not something that they just phoned in. That's been the universal uh, sort of review of this film. Yeah. And, you know, if you talk to somebody who does a lot of voice acting, they would tell you they're just an actor and they are, they are just an actor. Um, Even if they're not on camera themselves, they're still acting, but they will argue fiercely for bringing their a game to every performance because that's what they do for a living. But if you take, you know, someone who's mostly on camera as an actor and you just put them in front of a microphone, like you said, they're going to be tempted sometimes to just, well, it's just a cartoon. Well, I could just, you know. But everybody in this movie, including those two, um, brings their A-game. And you've also got Florence Pugh is in this movie. Uh, John Mulaney plays the villain. Mm -hmm. And everybody took their job seriously in this and they, they turned out a fantastic and fun, magical movie. All right, that is your eighth favorite, Puss in Boots, The Last Wish. I'm talking with Courtney Lanning about Courtney's favorite movies of 2022. Number seven, one we did talk about that you reviewed for the Arkansas Democrat Gazette. It's one that I want to watch. I haven't yet because um, it's a horror movie. But as you point out, it's a horror movie not set like any other horror movie. Right. And I don't know that I would call Prey a horror movie. Um, It's a monster movie? It's a monster movie. I mean, it's it's a prequel to the original Predator, um, a series that they have tried to make film sequels to several times and have just floundered with each attempt. Um, but, you know, after several attempts at making some kind of satisfactory follow-up to the Arnold Schwarzenegger cult classic, Prey definitely came in and just found the right formula. Uh, instead of putting the Predator in Los Angeles or on his home planet or somewhere else randomly on Earth, they put the Predator um, back in 
back in colonial times. This film is set during the 1700s. It has uh, an entirely indigenous cast, which is fantastic. Um, there's actually a full dub for this movie in the Comanche language. Wow. So, you know, not only do you win points for bringing in actors who are not given a lot of opportunities in Hollywood, um, you make the story all about them and their characters. And, you know, it, it really immerses you in this, I guess you want to call it a timepiece? Mm -hmm. Because, you know, you do have this advanced alien who's dealing with a society that doesn't have the kind of firepower Arnold had access to uh, in the original Predator. And, you know, this movie is not just an action flick. It's, it's artistic in the way that it's shot. You know, there's lots of beautiful, miring shots in the fog and creeping through the forests and swimming under rivers and such. It's, it's tastefully done. It's so much more than just a monster movie or an action movie. Um, and I, I think it just knocked it out of the park as far as a Predator follow-up. That's number seven, Prey. Number six, a movie I have seen, The Sea Beast, animated, and it is gorgeous. It is. Netflix has their own in-house animation studio. Uh, they've done movies like uh, Klaus, which was the, the Santa Claus story that came out a couple years ago. Now they've done The Sea Beast. They, uh, they helped do um, Guillermo del Toro's Pinocchio, which we'll talk about here in a few. So they, they've got some good heavyweight projects under their belt. They just come out swinging in an industry that is dominated by Disney and Pixar. And this animated film looks gorgeous. It's a lot of fun. Um, it's about basically pirates who hunt sea monsters for a living um, and a little girl who idolizes them and finds her way on their crew and basically learns that, you know, maybe there's more to the monsters that we're hunting. Maybe the pirates are not all the good guys for hunting these monsters. And it just has a lot to offer. Um, it's, it's gorgeously animated, like you said. And I think this is one of the few movies that offered a scene, a couple animated scenes that actually stopped my heart. Mm. You know, there's scenes I talked with you about when we were doing this review where when the main characters are under the ocean for the first time and they see this colossal sea beast just staring at them and there's no music, there's barely any sound. It's just them staring at this monster and you get the full scope of it. And it's just a very oof, moment. Right. So that is the sea beast. Sixth on your list. Prey was seventh. Puss in Boots, The Last Wish, eighth. Cha-Cha Real Smooth, ninth. 3,000 Years of Longing, 10th. We're going to take a break, and then tomorrow we're going to go through your top five. Can you come back tomorrow? I can come back. Courtney Lanning, thank you so much. For the Central Arkansas Library System, I'm Mark Chris with an Encyclopedia of Arkansas Minute. A former Boy Scout camp near Hardy now offers its facilities for free to youth groups. The Memphis, Tennessee Boy Scout Council opened the facility in 1916, calling it Kiakima, which means Nest of Eagles in Chickasaw. The camp operated through 1963 when a larger camp was established as Cherokee Village encroached on Kiakima. Despite extensive residential development, the 43 core acres of the camp remained, though the buildings were deteriorated and it had become a dumping ground. In August 1996, the old Kiakima Preservation Association was formed by former scouts to restore the camp, which includes 16 native stone cabins and the two-story stone Thunderbird Lodge. Kiakima reopened for camping in 2000 and in the 21st century offers a modern bathhouse, a 4,400-square-foot activities building, and swimming in the Spring River. Operating primarily on donations, Old Kiakima is available for use by qualified youth groups at no charge. To learn more, visit encyclopediaofarkansas.net. Tomorrow on Ozarks at Large, many city budgets in northwest Arkansas are increasing, but also increasing the people using the services paid for by those budgets. We've experienced population growth as demonstrated by the last census. The city is growing rapidly, and therefore it puts demands on all of our services that we supply to the public. A new year and new considerations for paying for city services. Ozarks at Large's Anna Pope has that story on tomorrow's show at noon and 7 p.m. and on your schedule with the free Ozarks at Large podcast. And hear the most recent edition of our show by asking your smart speaker to please play Ozarks at Large. Hi, I'm Matthew Moore. Here at KUAF, I do a lot of things. 
I report stories for Ozarks at Large on things like Instagram famous dogs, soil judging, and, you know, the Arkansas Legislature Special Session, to name a few. I also produce a couple podcasts, like Undiscipline and Natural Election. I get our stories on our website and in the podcast feeds. But there's one thing I can't do by myself, and that's pay for all of the news, entertainment, and music that our community relies on from KUAF. Well, that's where you come in. KUAF is supported in part by a whole host of sustaining members who make a regular contribution to this station that in part helps keep me reporting on dogs and elections and other stuff. So if you are a sustaining member already, thanks so much for what you do. And if you want to become a sustaining member, it's easy. Just head over to supportkubaf.com today, and I'll keep the dog stories coming. This is 91.3 KUAF, Fayetteville, Fort Smith, Rogers, and Sonora. KUAF is a listener-supported service of the School of Journalism and Strategic Media at the University of Arkansas. Contributors on this Tuesday program included Roby Brock with our partner Talk Business and Politics and our favorite film reviewer Courtney Lanning. Courtney will have her top five favorite films of 2022 on tomorrow's show at noon and seven. This Tuesday edition of Ozarks at Large produced inside the Anthony and Susan Hoy News Studio. And before I forget, a huge thank you to Timothy Dennis, Matthew Moore, Pete Hartman, everyone who worked uh, to make sure we had enough holiday specials to play in the Ozarks at Large time slot the last couple of weeks so the Ozarks at Large team could have a winter break. It was much appreciated. We love the break, and we love that we're back with brand new shows beginning this week. Thanks, everyone, for helping out. Now, before we go, a point of producer privilege. Last week, my father-in-law, John W. King, died. He was on this planet for 85 years, and he lived through a childhood that was tumultuous, challenging, and ultimately gave him a lifelong desire to help the neediest among us. He had several accomplishments. He married incredibly well. He was the father to four wonderful daughters, And he gave refuge to almost every lost and stray dog in Texas, Louisiana, West Virginia, Arkansas, Kentucky, and probably several other states I don't even know about. And John King loved his Texas Longhorns. No, I mean loved them. No human being was as devoted to a favorite sports team like John King was devoted to the Texas Longhorn football team. No one. No, not that Razorback fan you are, or that Razorback fan you know, or that Razorback fan you're related to. I'm serious. Though I grew up pulling for the Razorbacks during the Southwest Conference days, and you know what that means. I grew up thinking of the Longhorns. John and I never traded harsh words toward each other's favorite program. He called me with congratulations, in fact, when Scotty Thurman hit that jump shot to beat Duke in the 1994 NCAA Basketball Championship. And then a few years later, I returned the favor when his Texas Longhorn football team claimed their national championship at the Rose Bowl. He was a big-hearted guy, and he's going to be missed terribly by so many people. Hopefully, he and his twin brother Jack are right now somewhere talking about Texas football. Hug your family, hug your friends, and thank you so much for being with us this Tuesday. We will have more on a Wednesday edition of Ozarks at Large tomorrow at noon and 7.